Welcome to the teaching ministry of Walt East, lead chaplain at Sky Valley Chapel. We hope this teaching will serve as a practical guide for your daily walk as a Christ follower. We encourage you to follow along with your Bible and life notes, which can be found in the podcast show notes or on our website at svmin.com. Well, when they asked him what the greatest commandment was, he replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. In other words, give him all you got. Now, you would think that it would be impossible, wouldn't you, to have too much spiritual zeal. But thanks to our sin nature, we find ways to do that. Zeal happens, and when it happens, things can can get really, really bad sometimes. And that's what we're going to discover today as we continue our study through the book of Mark. This is, I think, the eighth week that we've been in our study of Mark. And if you haven't uh, been here for the last eight weeks, you can pick them up online on our podcast. If you don't know what that is or don't know how to get that, just let me know and we can we can help you there. And we'd like to welcome all those people that are listening from Canada and from other places this morning on our podcast. But we're going to be looking this morning at at, at two Sabbath stories. But first, I need to give a little bit of background about this thing called the Sabbath. Because when Mark wrote it, he assumed that everybody knew some of the things that many of us may think we know, but we don't necessarily know. We're not talking about just going to worship at church. In our culture, oftentimes, that's what we think of as going to worship at church. We're talking about what God termed the Sabbath. It was a day of rest that God commanded the children of Israel to have every seventh day from sundown on the sixth day until sundown on the seventh day. Well, it was a time of rest. God gave it to the Jews as a time of rest from work, not only on on the day of the Sabbath, but also during their, their high holy seasons, their special festivals. There were also Sabbaths there, times when they were to rest and not be out in the fields working. Even before God gave the commandments to Moses, way back in Genesis, God created for six days. And on the seventh day, he what? He rested. And that carried over into the law of Moses. It carried over into the law of Moses, those 613 laws that were given to Moses. And we know the first 10 of those as the 10 commandments. And in the 10 commandments, the fourth one is to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Now, right there, there's a problem for those of us who speak English as our primary language or don't speak Hebrew, I guess you could say, or even Greek, because the Hebrew word here meant to, meant, it meant to be separate. It meant to be set apart. It meant to be unique. It was a different type of day. It wasn't like all the other days. Holy to us is like, you know, we, we often think, well, we think very quiet and austere and can't have any fun and that kind of thing. But basically, all this word meant was set apart. In the Bible, it calls Christians holy ones. And basically what it means is those are the ones who are set apart for Christ. Those are the ones who are Christ followers. When something is holy unto God, it belongs to him. And that's what the word means. Keep the Sabbath holy. Keep it separate. Keep it different. Now, here's the thing about it. It was a gift. It was a gift from God. And you have to remember, this was an agrarian society there's an agrarian culture, and I know we've got, we've got many people in here who, who come from a farming background, who have been professional farmers. He was telling these people in this agrarian society and this agrarian culture, they, they had no DoorDash. They had no Stephen Mercurio to, 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 to drop food off at your, at your doorstep like we do here in Sky Valley. It was a culture of very hard, extreme labor. And so God said, here's the thing about you as a nation. When I gave, when I'm giving you your land, I want you to be known uniquely for every seventh day. It's a day off. And even, I want you to do it during the, during the planting season. Take the seventh day off. During the harvesting season, take the seventh day off. And God says, my promise to you is at the, at the end of the time when you, when you harvest, you're still going to have as full a harvest. In fact, you're going to have more of a harvest than if you'd worked seven days through like all the other people do. Well, somehow the Sabbath was turned into a burden. 
It was turned into a burden. Instead of a gift of a day off when everybody else was working hard, it became a burden. It became a ritual where you couldn't do anything. And it was a kind of a, a forced focus on God type of day. And, and a lot of other things were added to it. And they were added more. And they added more. And they added more. Even Orthodox Jews to this day are not even allowed to switch a light switch on the Sabbath. Because that constitutes work. You can't build a fire on the Sabbath. I remember back after Katrina hit, uh, when I was in, in New Orleans uh, working with the military there, they sent a, a very prominent Jewish rabbi down from New York, an Orthodox rabbi, very wonderful man by the name of Jacob Goldstein. And Jake was there, and I was working with him. He was there to help uh, recover the Torahs that were, the, the historical Torahs that were in the synagogues of New Orleans that were flooded out. And, but Jake was, was, a, was an Orthodox Jew, and on the Sabbath, his, his satellite phone that he had there with him, he couldn't answer it. So I got to be the one that answered his satellite phone. Now, I could answer his satellite phone for him, and if the person there could talk to me, then I could tell them what, he was, what they wanted him to know, and then he would tell me, you know, kind of cumbersome there, but that was the way to keep the Sabbath. All these rules, all these things put on top of it, when all God basically said is, don't work. Well, somehow, as I said, it was turned into a burden, whereas originally it was God saying, I'm going to give you a day off. I'm like your union steward. I want you to make sure you take your, your break, and I'll guarantee that you'll get as much work done. And like the other Ten Commandments, when I say that it was a gift, they're, they're all gifts. I mean, somehow you take the commandments, you know, we, we, this one became the burden, a, a test, if you were disciplined enough that you were going to sacrifice uh, enough to show God how much you love him by how well you could keep the Sabbath by putting layers upon layers upon layers on it. And it's out of line with the other Ten Commandments. You know, they were a blessing also. I mean, they brought great good to the people. They, they brought great good to the community. They brought great good to the nation, so much so that, that they're, they're on the walls of our courtrooms and such. And we understand that, that people that follow these things it brings great good to the community. It's why it's ingrained in, in our ethos and in our, in our culture here in the United States. You know, you'll have no other gods before me. Don't worship idols, God said. Well, what we tend to forget is that these surrounding nations there in Canaan and what later became Israel, they, they were involved in incredible debauchery. They had a sacrificial system where it included child sacrifice and, and other horrific things. And, and God says, no, I am the only God. You don't mess around with these other little G gods. And then he also said, you never, never take my name in vain. And for that, us, that's kind of become, um, become like, you know, swear words and stuff like that. And that's not what God was talking about. He was basically saying, don't make rash, vain promises in my name. If you're going to swear an oath, you're going to take an oath, you need to take it seriously. And, and every time I, I raised my hand when I was in the military and at the end of the oath of, of office and when I was promoted and stuff, you say, so help me God. I take that seriously. God didn't say don't not say so help me God, but don't do it flippantly. So we take God's name seriously. He says, honor your father and your mother. And when you, when you agree it's a, it's a better world when, when children honor their parents, most of us that are parents would say amen, amen. It says don't murder. And aren't you glad murder isn't like a free-for-all? There are places in the, in, in the world where a life isn't worth it much to, to people, and life, life comes cheap. And so I'm glad, that, I'm glad that, uh, that, that murder isn't a free-for-all. It says, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not covet. So when you step back and you ask about the Ten Commandments, none of them are like, oh, crud, you know, I really wanted to murder. We call those people sociopaths or psychopaths. Like, oh, drats, I really wish I could just take your cool car. No, that'd be stealing. You can't do that because then someone's going to come along and take it from me. These commands were, were gifts. They were gifts individually, and they were gifts collectively. But somehow what happened over hundreds of years, the religious leaders, the kind of spiritual hyperdogs that they were, they had turned the gift into a burden. And that's what is happening in these stories that we're going to look at today. So with that background, I want to look at Mark chapter 2, beginning at verse 23. And it's on your life notes there. We've got all the scripture uh, that's for our main passage on your life notes there. So if you pull that out, you'll be able to follow along. And uh, remember, Mark is kind of like the, the see Jesus, see Jesus run version of the gospel. We're looking at these stories of Jesus. And, and Mark, he, he's not laying things out in chronological order. He's, he's not going to a whole lot of depth like some of the other gospel writers do. He just gets right to it. He's very straight and to the point. And so he says here in verse 23, one Sabbath, okay, so here, here's one of the many Sabbath stories. He's going to give us a second one in a few verses. 
He says, one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees, those were the religious leaders, one part of the religious leaders, but the, but the majority of the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Well, here's what you need to know. It was unlawful according to their extra rules, their man-made traditions. It was not unlawful according to what God originally told them. The Bible actually said, do not work. But they said this constituted work because the, the disciples were taking the picking the grain, they're putting it between their hands, and then they were popping it in their mouth. Oh, you're working. Why are your disciples working? Why are they doing what's, what's unlawful on the Sabbath? And so when they say this, uh, why are you guys doing what's unlawful, they're, they're not talking about one of the 613 laws that God gave. They're talking about all these other things that they piled on, that they put around to protect God's law. So Jesus defends their actions by pointing to an incident that's recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 17, or chapter 27 actually. And it's a case where David is running away from, from Saul, the wicked king that wanted to kill David. And he and his men were hungry. David and his men were hungry, and they, they, they actually broke one of the laws. They're, they clearly broke one of God's 613 here, we're going to see. There's no way around it. They went to the, where the priest was, and they told the priests that they were hungry. They were, they were starving. And when you got a bunch of soldiers, and they're not, hung, or they're not being fed, they're, they're hungry, that's not a good thing. Would you agree? You need to feed the troops. And so the priest took some of the bread that was on the show table, the bread that was left before the Lord every day, it was cooked fresh. It was put before the Lord. And, and according to the law, this bread was only supposed to be consumed by the priest. Now, were David and his soldiers priests? No. So they weren't supposed to consume this bread according to the law. But the priest said, hey, okay, your guys are in bad shape here. Go ahead and eat this. And so Jesus here, his story he tells in, in verse 25. He says, he answered, have you never read what David went, did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Appiather, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, he's basically saying, you guys, you guys got it all wrong. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's a gift. It's not a burden to, to, to see if you're committed enough. It's, it's a gift to show how much mercy and grace and goodness that God has given us, just like we sang about a few minutes ago. God is a good, good father. And then Jesus uh, finishes up on there. He says, so the son of man, this is the, 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 the name for himself that he had taken. He says, the son of man is Lord even over the Sabbath. Now, we continue here in chapter 3, verse 1. Mark writes, he says, another time. So he's talking about another Sabbath here. Another time he went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them, he's talking about the Pharisees here, some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. So What's wrong with that? This is, you see this gift, the Sabbath, do not work, I'll bless you, live with margin, time off. Well, they had turned it into healing is work. They decided that any medical practice to alleviate someone's pain, alleviate someone's suffering on the Sabbath constituted work. Now, so was that what God said originally? No. And so the Sabbath, you couldn't heal. So again, this, this thing that God gave as a gift, they turned into a ridiculous burden and that's what's going on now because they were quite clear that you couldn't heal someone on the Sabbath, as you're going to see here. That's what's their position. They'd heard all these rumors. They'd heard all these stories uh, about this, this, this healer, this teacher that was going around healing people with, with just words. And so we pick it up. There's a, uh, they were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. And, and watch this. Jesus is going to pick a fight with him. He doesn't seem very Jesus-like the way that many of us picture Jesus here. He's no Mr. Rogers here. He's going to pick a fight with him. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Now, I want you to catch this. Jesus could have done this quietly. 
Jesus could have said, hey, dude, meet me after the service, and I'll take care of that for you. That's what he could have done, but no. He's going to take the Pharisees. He's going to take the religious leaders on here. He says, stand up right in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. They didn't have an answer for him. He's, he's ticked off. He looked around on them with what? Anger. Deeply distressed. This isn't just a, a mild inconvenience to him. He is deeply distressed at their attitudes and at their stubborn hearts. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. And look at what the result was. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians. The Herodians were the, were the people were, that were the political leaders of King Herod's group. The Herodians, how they might kill Jesus. Now, to understand these Sabbath stories and, and what do they say to us in, in our life, we need to understand a couple things because we need to understand the Sabbath like I talked about earlier, but we, we also need to understand the forest, not just these two trees that we're looking at here in these stories this morning. So on your life notes, there's a section there that says the backstory. It says the backstory from bad to worse. And what's going on from bad to worse in Mark is just really a quick telling of, of how the most zealous people, you know, they knew the Bible better than anyone else. They were more committed than anybody else. They followed all the real laws, the 613, better than anybody else, plus all the extra ones that they added to it. You know, how did these people end up the enemy of Jesus? How did it happen? And Mark is telling us as he goes through through these stories, and he's been telling us all along, but we may not have caught it because we're in here once a week looking at a story or two, and, and, and I want to just show you the flow here that's been going on for the past eight weeks as we've been going through these stories. So I want to put up here on the screen, you know, the first one we looked at was Mark chapter 1, verses 21 to, 20 to 24. I want you to see the flow here. Don't try to write all this stuff down. If you haven't, if you weren't here before, just go back and pick up the podcast. If you want extra copies of the life notes, uh, we have them in our office. But what happens here is, is Jesus there begins his ministry. And news of this new miracle worker spreads like, spreads like wildfire. Now, when that happens, can you imagine what happens with the other religious leaders? It's what oftentimes happens. They got jealous. They got jealousy, a little bit of human jealousy. It's unspoken here, but it's human nature. And, and that's, how, that's how we usually do it, don't we? Your, your buddy's business is going really well, and, and you're happy as long as yours is doing better. But whenever his returns, his, his, his profits become three times what your sales have been or hit your sales are, are, are beginning to slide, you're not so happy about your buddy anymore, are you? So that's the first step. Then he tells us in Mark chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, you know, Jesus forgives the sins of a paralyzed man who's been dropped down through the roof into the house. And Jesus tells the man, well, your bigger problem isn't the paralysis in your legs. Your bigger problem, your, your, your real problem, your eternal problem is solved. Your sins are forgiven. And these guys, they literally freak out. They go, only God to do that can do that. And Jesus, I'm sure, says, yeah. Um, you're, you're blaspheming. And to prove that he really has the power to, to forgive, he heals the man. The man ends up, we called him Paralyzed Pat. Paralyzed Pat ends up walking out and then telling a story over and over again. And then Mark immediately moves to the next story in John chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Jesus is walking along, and, and, he, and he's walking by a tax collector's uh, booth. Levi was his name. We, all, we know him as Matthew. But he's walking by the booth, and, and he invites Levi to join his entourage, this hated tax collector who was selling out his own people to collect taxes from the Jews to, to fund the Roman Empire. The Pharisees hated these people. And then afterward, Jesus has the audacity to have dinner with this tax collector and his other sinner buddies. And so now they look at him. They're already a bit jealous. They're calling him a blasphemer. And now he's completely unholy and, and impure in their eyes. You know, a holy man's supposed to stay away from sin and sinners. Why are you at this party? They want to ask Jesus. And then Mark goes to number four, the next one in, in chapter two, verses 18 to 22. We saw that the disciples, I think this was last week we looked at this, the disciples didn't fast. And what did he say? Well, they don't need to because I'm here. The bridegroom's here. And the religious leaders look at that and they say, well, your guys aren't even committed 
They should fast like we do. You know, these little rituals and all these things that we do to show how, how, how committed we are to God. You call yourself a holy man. You claim to be forgiving sins. You're hanging around with sinful people. You're, you're not following any of the spiritual disciplines that are, that are expected. And then he goes to Mark 2, 23 through 27, the fifth one here. His disciples break a Sabbath tradition, and not really a, a real biblical law, but a strongly held defi- uh, tradition, as we looked at a few minutes ago. And Jesus defends them. And in their minds, in their minds, he is defending sin. Because for them, for them, for, them, for the Pharisees, these guys, these disciples, they were sinning by harvesting grain, by taking a few bites of grain going through the grain field that day. And then the last one, as we just looked at a minute ago, first six verses of chapter three of Mark. Jesus intentionally, he intentionally, he with great intent angers them. He takes them on by healing on the Sabbath. And the overarching thing that Mark is trying to show us here is how the religious leaders turned against Jesus. How the religious leaders turned against Jesus. He's been giving story after story after story, and it escalates, and it culminates in these two Sabbath stories. And it's going to be important because we all know what happens at the, at the end of the book. You know, they, 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 they go to the authorities, the, the political authorities, and have Jesus put to death. But this is where it all started. This was the progression that was going on here. When we've walked through this passage, I've given you a little bit of historical background. I've helped you to see how it ties in with the other stuff that we've looked at in Mark. Should we go home now? No. Some of you may say, yeah, let's go home. Yeah. No, we need to see how does this apply? How does this apply to our lives? You know, I, I've said for years, some of you have heard me say it too, you know, the last thing I want someone walking out of these doors after I've spoken is saying, so what? What I endeavor to do each and every time I get up to teach is to help answer the question, now what? What do I do with this information that I've just learned? Because this isn't information just for information's sake, okay? This is information for life change. It's information, I believe that God's, God's word is a textbook for life. And he wants this word to get into us and to change our lives, to be more conformed to the character of his son, Jesus Christ. So... The culmination of what's here is not just a a bunch of facts. It's a window. As we look at the Pharisees in this first passage, the stories that it's led to, and and we see this window on how well-intentioned zeal can go bad. And it's a warning for all of us. For some of us who see ourselves, whether we admit it or not, as better Christians than anybody else, there's a serious warning here about what to watch out for in our own lives. So what we want to do here is we want to, we want to look at what went wrong. We want to see how well-intentioned zeal goes bad because we don't want to be enemies of Jesus. We don't want to be enemies of God. And in your life notes, you've got a section uh, there for that, and I'm going to share four things with you. The first one I want to share with you, and I want you to write this down, fill in the blank there. We start adding extra rules to God's commands. We start adding extra rules to God's commands. God said what? Don't work on the Sabbath. Okay, and what do they add? Don't take grain from the field. Don't rub it between your hands. Don't eat it. Don't heal people. Don't do medicine. As I said, don't flip the light switch. Don't talk on the satellite phone on the, on the Sabbath. They had this whole list, this long list of rules. And, and the Orthodox Jews to this day, as technology changes and things like that happen, they have to keep adding to those rules. They had this rule, that these, these rules that went on. And, and, and really, those of you, the parents, you know that it is natural it's kind of a natural thing to want to protect our children, isn't it? We want to protect our children. It's a natural thing to, to put these kind of fences up to keep the children to keep the children safe. And that's religiously what they were doing. They were putting up these extra fences. Well, the problem is with extra fences, what are children going to do? They're going to climb them. They're going to test them. You know, I remember one of my, when my first real job, I was 15 years old. Um, they acted like I was 16, so like they, could, they hired me. I worked for Roadway Express, and I hate Roadway Orange to this day because I, I did a lot of painting for Roadway that, that summer. But uh, I remember a sign that we had said, Lives there a man with such restraint who hath not touched where it said wet paint? How, how, many, how many here can say they've never touched where it said wet paint? 
Boy, you're a better man than I am. You're a better man. The rest of you are honest. We've got a couple liars. Anyway, you know, everybody, you, what, you, know, you see, a is that really wet? It looks dry to me. You know, you reach out and touch, and that's what kids do when you see these fences. You see these barriers. And these extra fences, when we, when we see that it's not wet, then what do we want to do? Well, we're not going to trust the sign next, to, next time. And that's the same thing with all these extra fences, all these extra whatever that we, that we put out there to, to keep them from doing whatever, you know, it is we don't want them to do. And, and, they, and they cross them because they've been jumping over our silly fences to begin with. All week studying this, I've been thinking about many of you will remember Luther Bell, a uh, great, great man here. He was on our, on our chapel board. Uh, Luther used to tell a story about when he was a kid. He grew up in, in southern Georgia like I did. Luther used to tell a story about when he was a kid. He was taught you don't go to movies on Sunday. Many of you may have been taught that as well. When I was growing up in the 60s in Georgia, the blue laws were still in effect. The only two stores that were allowed to be open on Sunday were drug stores and grocery stores. But anyway, Luther was, was growing up on the other side of the southern part of Georgia from where I was. And Luther went to a, one afternoon as a kid. He snuck away from his parents, and he went to the, the movie theater. And Luther just, I mean, I mean he, he, he tells, he just was so guilty. He felt so guilty sitting there in the movie theater, and he's just waiting for God to just, you know, come down a lightning bolt and consume the entire theater. And he wasn't where he was supposed to be because he had been taught, don't go to the movie theater on Sunday. And that all went back to this fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Don't work. So we still do it in our lifetimes here. It's human nature. It's human nature in our parenting. It's in our discipling. It's in our spirituality. And the pattern is this. We say, well, I don't think they'll understand, so I'm going to add another layer here. And then someone else comes along, I'm going to add another layer here and another layer. And it's, it's human nature to do that. And we do it to our friends. We do it to our kids. We do it to other Christians. We do it to people that aren't even Christians. We expect them to be following, things like that. And, and so that's what happened to the Sabbath. They turned a gift into a, dis, a discipline, a burdened and, and forced spiritual reflection. Remember this, please. Remember this. God doesn't need an editor. God doesn't need a proofreader. Anytime you and I add things to help God out, basically what we're, we're saying is, thanks for the book, but you forgot. You forgot. In Proverbs chapter 30, look at this one. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 5 and 6 says this. It says, every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. What does it say next? Do not add to his words, or he will rebuke you and prove you to be a liar. Now, most of you have been around Christianity a long time, and you've heard this word legalism or, or legalistic. It's a term that we use to de describe people who, who add these man-made rules. And here's the thing about legalism. Legalism always claims to be based in the Bible. It always has a Bible verse. But its legalistic rules are never found in the Bible. They're based on the Bible, but they're not found in the Bible. Do no work on the Sabbath. Oh, well, that means don't eat grain. Don't flip a light switch. You know, don't heal. They're based on the Bible, which is, by the way, why it's so hard to argue with a legalist. You know, I give up arguing with legalists. They already think they're a better Christian than you are. And they, they think that they're more committed. They follow all of God's rules, at least they think they do. That many of them they probably don't even know, as we're going to see here in a few minutes. So I'm going to give you an example of that. And, and they even follow the 15 extra ones that the church they grew up in had or the denomination they had. And, and, and if you try to point it out to them that that's not where the Bible says, they keep going back to this one, this one Bible verse. It's like their foundation they built everything on. So don't work became don't, don't heal or don't help. Don't get drunk becomes don't drink at all. Don't worship idols has become, don't put up a Christmas tree, because some pagans in the past have put up trees in December. And, I, and I've, I've had to deal with people in congregations I've been in where that's happened. You know, don't put up a Christmas tree, because it's a, pagan, it's a pagan symbol. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And where the Bible's talking about there, Paul, Apostle Paul goes and says, you know, therefore avoid sexual immorality. And again, it became don't smoke, you know, one of the cardinal uh, sins in the evangelical world. At least don't smoke in front of other people or don't drink or don't drink in other, other, front of other people. You know, used to have a, a joke. Uh, when you take a Baptist fishing with, you always take two. Because if you take one, they'll drink all your beer. Um, 
I say that as a recovering Baptist, okay? And I can't tell you, I can't tell you how many preachers I've heard harping on things like smoking and drinking, and yet they've been up on the stage carrying 50, 60, 75 extra pounds, and you think they're going to have a stroke or a heart attack up there on stage. Oh, you, you kind of skipped the one about gluttony, did you? Okay, so you're not following the whole, all of them. You know, I think we know the dangers of smoking. That's been well documented, I know, during, during my lifetime. You, you watch some of these old TV shows back from the, the 50s and 60s, and everybody's got a cigarette in their mouth and stuff like that, and we, we, we know the dangers of smoking now. now we know that, it's, that it's, a, it's a pretty dumb habit, but it is, I'll admit, it's a hard one to break. It's a hard one to break, but it's not going to send you to hell, despite what some preacher may have told you. When we add these extra rules... And we're really good at picking and choosing them. What we don't realize is that's the first step in a bad direction. We become the very people that the Pharisees became, trying to help out God when God doesn't need our help. Now, having said that, I want you to be crystal clear on this. Um, I've got Romans uh, 14 there in your notes under this point. You know, this chapter 14 in Romans, there's a big debate going on whether or not Christians should honor the Sabbath the way the Jews kept the Sabbath, and also whether or not they could eat meat that had been, uh, that had been sacrificed in a pagan temple that had been offered to idols. And so uh, Paul's trying to address that there. Uh, You've got to remember Rome wasn't a, a Jewish city. It was, a, it was the capital of the empire at the time. There was a lot of uh, paganism. There was a pagan culture there. Uh, and the meat actually was better meat being sold in the marketplace because they'd taken the they would sacrifice the meat in the temple, not the Jewish temple, in the pagan temple, then they'd take it and sell it in the marketplace after, so it was better, better meat. And so the Apostle Paul was addressing this question, hey, can we, can we eat meat offered to idols? And some said yes, and others said no. Others said, hey, it's a man-made thing, you know, who, who cares? Those, those little G gods aren't real, and by the way, it's a good filet. And on the Sabbath, it's like some say every day belongs to the Lord, others say it's just a special one, and all this is going on. They're asking Paul, who's right? And Paul says, you both are. You both are. He says the problem isn't the extra rules that you have personally put on your own life for spiritual growth, for your own spiritual discipline. The problem is the extra rules that you try to put on everybody, on everybody else, on their lives for their good. There's nothing wrong, in fact, probably most Christians I know who are really committed to the Lord, they, they have areas of their life where they put an, an extra fence up around their life for their own background, because of their personality, because of their, their unique temptations, their, the, the unique things that they, that they deal with. Uh, maybe because the Holy Spirit has told them, hey, your name is on this. They'll fast maybe at some times because the Holy Spirit has led them to fast. And I'm telling you, if, if the Holy Spirit leads you to fast, fast. But don't try to then say, hey, well, this is what makes me a good Christian because I fast during this time and you have to do it and you have to do it and you have to do it and you have to do it. I want to you know, remind you that you know, what's personal is personal. Here's a quote from C.S. Lewis. Most of you, I think, are familiar with, with this, this, uh, this Christian. In Mere Christianity, he's talking about this kind of thing. And he says there, one of the marks of a certain type of bad man is that he cannot give up a thing without wanting everyone else to give it up. That's not the Christian way. An individual Christian may see fit to give up all sorts of things for special reasons. Marriage, or meat, or beer, or the cinema. God bless Luther. But the moment he starts saying these things are bad in themselves, or looking down his nose at other people who do use them, he has taken a wrong turning. It's this, what we could call extra fence syndrome, putting this up this extra fence to protect God. Don't turn to it. Trust God. Every word of his is pure. Do not add to his words or he will rebuke you and prove you a liar. God says a similar thing here in Colossians chapter 2, verses 20, uh, 23. Paul writes, since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, as though you still belong to it, do you Submit. He's saying, since you died to, to, to the basic principles, since you're different, since you're called out, since you're a Jesus follower, why do you act as if you still belong to it? Why do you submit to its rules like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But catch this, but they lack 
any value in restraining sensual indulgence. The first step were deep commitment, zeal to scripture, to living for the Lord, to making sure each and every day and everything I do is for his glory and his fame goes bad, is when I try to help God out by adding extra fences to his word. Now, again, if you look at your life notes, I'm going to answer something that, that some of you may be thinking about here and, and wondering when it comes to the Sabbath, and, and that is simply this, you know, well, Walt, you said it's a gift, are we supposed, supposed to be keeping the Sabbath after all? Now, remember, the Sabbath we're talking about here is the 24-hour period. I'm not saying, we're not talking about just attending church, okay? That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a 24-hour period. You know, are we supposed to be keeping it after all? There are verses that say that this is forever. Yes, there are. Didn't Jesus say nothing was going to pass away of the Old Testament law? Yes, he did. But I want to show you something here. Some that you may not have seen, some that you may not have been taught. On your life notes, in that little box there, I've got three verses. And I want you to see the pattern, and um, we're going to go over them quickly here, and you can look at them closer during the week. And it's going to answer this question, are we supposed to keep this Old Testament Sabbath? The first important verse is found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 18. Jesus said, and he's speaking here, these are the red letters, Okay. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, at this point, when Jesus is speaking, are they still in place? Is the law still in place? Yes, it is. He says, I have not come to abolish them, but to what? To fulfill them. To fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law. Until what? Until everything is accomplished. Now, let's look at what else Jesus had to say later, because what were Jesus's final words on the cross? It is finished. It is finished. You could say, you know, it is accomplished. Remember President Bush, you know, the, the war mission accomplished. Okay. It is accomplished. See, you thought that was President Bush's own thing. You know, Jesus said it is accomplished. It was, it was, this is a, 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 a saying, a, a phrase that was when something was paid in full. If you got a receipt for something that showed that you paid for it, it'd say it's paid in full. You'd have a stamp on it in that culture. That's the term they used. And then in John 1930, he says, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished, accomplished, paid in full. Without, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And then Matthew 27, verses 50 and 51 teaches something incredibly significant happened at this point after Jesus died on the cross. You see, in the Jewish temple, there was a special place called the Holy of Holies, and it represented the presence of God. And according to the law, remember the law, the 613 commands that God gave them? According to the law, only one day a year, only one person a year could go behind could go behind that screen, go behind that curtain into the Holy of Holies. The high priest went through there and took blood back to make atonement for the sins of Israel once a year. And the biblical passages that talk about the day of atonement, they say the same thing about the Sabbath, that this is the law for all generations forever. That's the same verbiage that's used there. It's a law that's to go on and on forever. Yet what happened? When Jesus said, this is accomplished, this is paid in full, in verse 50 of Matthew 27, and when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. That curtain in Herod's temple was 60 feet high. 60 feet high. It was four inches thick. You don't want nobody going there except for when the law said they could go back there. And God tore it from the top to the bottom. He tore it because all 613 of those laws had been perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It had been paid for completely. And all 613 laws, including the ones about the Day of Atonement, they'd all been fulfilled. They'd been completed. And that's why we don't do those things anymore. We, some of us, we want to go back and pick and choose which ones we want to keep going on. I'll go and tell you, nine of the Ten Commandments, nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament. There's one that isn't. And that is this thing 
about spending those 24 hours on the Sabbath doing no work. Now, I'm not saying this to say, okay, let's be like the, you know, like whatever and just work people like dogs seven days a week. I'm not saying that. I'm just pointing out to you what God's word actually says. You got a problem with it, take it up with the author. And that's why if you want to keep this habit of the Sabbath, keep it. It's a good thing. It's a good thing to take a break once in a while. In fact, in our culture, we've kind of gone to taking, you know, two days, Saturday and Sundays, you know, off. And uh, in some cultures now, they take three-day, they make, I know some uh, European countries, I understand, have made like three-day weekends a, a thing, you know, all the time. But there's no way that we can say, well, the Sabbath has to be kept like it was in the Old Testament when the Day of Atonement. If you're going to do that, you need to, you need to go find that veil, you need to go find that temple, and you start worshiping the way they did then. Because you can't have it both ways. One of my favorite examples that illustrates this is, is what we do with the, or what has happened in recent years with the subject of tattoos. You know, now I'm a sailor, many of you know that, and I, I made it through 30 years in the Navy without a tattoo. That's, a, that's an amazing, amazing feat. You know, oftentimes military people get tattoos. I do have a small one now. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but um, okay. You can't see it. I have a little fish, the fish symbol for Jesus. It's in white ink. It's in white ink. Why? I got it on here about four or five years ago because it's in white ink because I don't want to offend people. I know there's some legalistic people out there that'll be hearing me preach, and I don't want to offend people. Yeah, there's a little white, white fish there. Now you know my secret. And some of you that were here a few weeks ago know my middle name, but I'm not going to repeat that again. Well, there's a lot of people that are legalistic about tattoos. There, a few years ago, when I was a command chaplain at Coast Guard Training Center, Yorktown, I had a young lady who was one of the medics at the, at the health clinic there come to me, and she was just distraught because um, she told me that this elderly gentleman had told her she was going to hell. And uh, she, being in uniform, her hair was pulled up, so you saw this tattoo that was on the back of her neck there. And this gentleman had followed her. One day she, she'd come in, told him, please follow me to the, to the, to the office where the doctor was going was gonna to treat him. And so he's walking down the, the, the corridor, and he sees this tattoo, and he tells her, That's a, you're going to go to hell because of that. And she, she was distraught about it. And I've been witnessing to this young lady for a couple of years. It was because of this verse in Leviticus where it says, Do not cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. This is one of those 613 that were back there that when Jesus said it's finished, it's finished, it's accomplished. So you shouldn't get a tattoo or do anything under that law. And, you know, a lot of Christians are quick to judge people with tattoos. And I, I feel secure now that you're not going to judge me because it's in white and you're not going to have to see it all the time. But anyway, if you're going to follow that, if you're going to be a legalist, if you're going to follow that, you need to follow the whole law. The Apostle Paul talks about that. If you're going to follow the old law, you need to follow the entire law. And very few people that I meet that are against tattoos or something, they don't follow the, the verse directly before that. It says, do not cut the hair on the side of your head or clip off the edges of your beard. That's immediately preceding the one about tattoos. So if you're going to be consistent about following God's law, then be consistent. And I don't see too many people the, that I've run across that have talked about tattoos, you know, having, you know, wearing like the Orthodox Jewish gentleman here. They aren't running around like that. You see what we do? We pick and choose. But Jesus fulfilled them. They're done. Now we live in grace. We don't live under the law. We live in grace. And the New Testament repeats many of these things. Jesus has the, he gave us the law of love, as we quoted at the beginning. And then specific things, those other nine that are in the Ten Commandments, like honor your father and mother, avoid sexual immorality, all these other nine. Now let me quickly get to the last three things, the last three points here. Because the biggest one is this, this fence building, this adding to the law, and it leads to these other three. The second thing where zeal goes bad, it's not only when we try to help God out with extra rules because uh, we think that his weren't good enough, but it's when we start using the Bible as binoculars instead of a mirror. When we start using the Bible as a binocular instead of mirror. It's easy after we learn more and more about the Bible, it's easy for us to, you know, as we change our life, for us, to, for us to quit looking at Scripture and at our Lord to see how far we have to go. It's easier for us to start looking, well, who hasn't kept up with where I'm at? And that's what happens when we turn the Bible into binoculars. We walk out of a Bible study or we walk out of a sermon with notes and, and we have in our mind five people that they need to hear this. 
They need to hear what the preacher said today, or they need to hear this, this Bible study. They, we need to remember this is to be a mirror. This is to be a mirror for its primary reasons to, to help us to change our lives, to, to allow the Holy Spirit to change us, to conform to the character of Jesus Christ. You're supposed to be a mirror, but yet we end up with, with what, what could be called log-eye disease. We end up with log-eye disease. You know, Jesus talked about this in, in Matthew chapter 7, where he said, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when clearly you've got this long plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You know, whenever we have the privilege to dig into Scripture, our eyes get opened. And unfortunately, we have a tendency to say, well, who, who, who else doesn't know that? And when we do that, when we measure people against ourselves, where we're at on this spectrum, we're going in the wrong direction. Never, ever compare your knowledge and your obedience to other people to show how you are better. Don't do that to show how, how you're better. Compare your knowledge and your obedience to the full knowledge and the full obedience of Christ to see where you need to go next. And it changes everything. And what the Pharisees did and what we tend to do today is we turn God's measuring rod that shows us how short we are and how it's all about grace and mercy and, 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 and his goodness into a competition and so that we can see who's tallest. Now, I'm no way saying that we don't try to obey the laws of God and we don't, that we don't grow in these areas, but I'm simply saying that we don't find our confidence in them. We don't place our trust in our ability to follow the rules, to follow the commands. The moment we find our confidence, we begin to move where the enemy wants us, not where Jesus wants us. How does zeal go bad? It starts with the empty fences, and then with those extra fences, we start using our Bible and our, and our traditions as a binocular instead of a mirror. And then we begin to major on minors. We get a little more advanced in our, in our walk with the Lord, a little more advanced in our knowledge and in our commitments. And we start to, to argue and divide over minor issues. Truth is truth. Repeat that with me. Truth is is truth. There is such a thing as absolute truth. I'm not saying, well, whatever you believe, as long as you believe it sincerely, it's your truth. No, no, that's a stupid way of thinking. And it's, per I'll be honest, with you, it's permeated our culture, including much of our church culture. There is real truth. There is absolute truth. But here's the thing. We all fall short of full knowledge of the truth. I'm not saying I don't seek truth. I'm not saying I don't study. I'm not saying that I don't sometimes go to you and say, wait, let me show you something. I mean, that's, that's what I do when I get up here week in and week out on, on Sunday mornings. There's a right and there's a wrong. But it's, it's all about what do I do with it? Again, practicality. What do we do with the truth in our lives? What do we do to apply the truth to our lives so that we become like Jesus? You know, we don't go, oh, man, you're following Jesus. You're living a pretty uh, obedient life. And, you know, we're saying, thing, well, how can I separate myself from this person? And, oh, I know how. Um, um, do you know what infralapsarianism is? What? Most of you are going like that, yeah. And, and I've got advanced degrees, and I don't remember all this stuff all the time, all these technical theological words. But, you know, we, we do that. We'll throw, you know, I, I know people that, that have less education than me, but they'll, they'll focus on these things and they'll memorize these little things so they can throw them out on other Christians and, and appear smarter and more committed to God than they are. Or people say, well, when do you think he's coming back? Pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib. Mid oh, oh, you've never heard of the tribulation. Well, I don't think there's any hope for you then. You know, we, and we argue, we turn those things, those minor things into major things. We turn them into salvation things. And, you know, we get into heaven on a blood test not some pop quiz. We get into heaven on a blood test, his blood, his righteousness, not by running harder and, and longer than anybody else. So don't major on the minors because when we do, we start to love rules and ideas more than people. When you start to think about it, remember the Sabbath stories we looked at today? That's what happened to these folks that opposed Jesus. They love keeping the Sabbath. They love making sure I don't do anything that might slightly remotely be construed as work. 
They love that more than letting someone satisfy their hunger. They love the rule of the Sabbath. They love keeping it really well more than more than helping a guy with a shriveled up hand find healing. They would rather him suffer another day so they could say, look, we kept the Sabbath. And there's a lot of Christians out there. You've probably met some of them. I know I have who would rather be right than good. They'd rather be right than loving. But as we saw last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it says, if I have all knowledge and I'm totally right and I do not have love, I have what? Nothing. I have nothing. Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. That kind of zeal. But he said also the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus was quite, quite clear. He said, on these two hang all the law and the prophets. Love God, love your neighbor. He lived under the law. He honored the Sabbath, actually, just like the law said. But he said, guys, gals, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And he even picked a fight over this issue, a fight that ended up later with him being crucified on a cross. And that is how zeal goes bad. God doesn't need any help. He never did, and he never will. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this message. For more information on Chapel Mall and the ministry of Sky Valley Chapel, please visit our website at sv. MIN.com. You can support this ministry on our website, Facebook page, or by downloading our app in the Apple or Google Play Store. Have a blessed day.